So let's pray. And then we'll talk about this. Lord, we thank you for your word this day. Cool evening. Um, thank you for loving us and winning us and uh, coming to us and giving us this few hours we have together. We bless your name. I pray that each one of us would leave here being filled up and encouraged and helped by you and that we would be a blessing to our families, to our churches as we go from here. Amen. So Genesis chapter 2, if you remember the story, this is the uh, part where God makes a man, he makes a garden, puts the man in the garden, charges the man, there's a river coming out of the garden, you remember that part? And then he makes a, uh, gives him a command, makes a woman, brings the woman to the man. I want to talk about that. So looking at verse 18, reading from there, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, we read about all the animal things. The writers, if you'll notice here, the uh, writers are not going to quote or say anything from verses 19 to 21, they're not interested in the animals and this whole process. They're not going to quote that part. They're very interested in what happened with the woman and Adam. So there's a, even a hint for me, if I'm going to be preaching a sermon, teaching people about something, say, where would I focus? A real help is, I don't know, pick where the apostles would pick. What mattered to them? Something I say sometimes about literature and the Bible is if the author doesn't care, you shouldn't care. Just a, a help. So if somebody's going to spend a long time about, for instance, what Satan was doing before we see the tree and the snake, say the authors, that's not the story they're telling. They're a story, telling the story of the heavens and the earth and people He's important as he interacts with it, but we're not telling his career. His career is going to end very badly. So if the author doesn't care, we don't have to care. We're finding out what they care deeply about here. So it says, uh, For Adam there was not found a helper fit for him, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, um, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So if we look at this, starting in verse 18, it said, 1K119. See where it says that? Do you remember what I said the K stood for? Corinthians. Corinthians. So let's go there. Let's see what we find in Corinthians. So 1K119. He's got a, a thing here, and it's about how men and women ought to pray and prophesy. So 11.9 said this, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So you see that and you say, okay, Paul is building a theological thought here about behavior in the church. Right? Where did he get his thought from? If I'm wondering that, Paul, you're coming out with random rules 
to keep women down. Let's say that's my perspective. What am I learning right here? Is he coming up with something random or did it have a source? It had a source. What was the source? Genesis chapter 2. That's what he's thinking of. But he's using his theology then to say these are implications for the church. Now I'm going to want to in this say, okay, that verse isn't the only verse I'm going to want to read here. I'm going to want to move up and move down in Corinthians and say, Paul, what's your argument here? What are you going after? But it helps us to know this when people are thinking about things and just saying, why do we have thoughts about men and women in different roles? Or should we have thoughts about men and women in different roles? Things like that. You'd say, well, I can give you my opinion, but because the apostles are our authorized, Christ's authorized spokespeople, they would be the ones to follow, though. What do they do? And Paul, in talking about this, goes directly to Genesis chapter 2. We're not going to spend any time on this one because we're going to bump into this again. So we're going to move from this spot. Notice the next one, though. So that was 18, was 1T 2.13. So 1 Timothy, right? So we go to 1 Timothy 2.13, and the verse, it said it's quoting... Here is, uh, let's see, where, where was I? No, I'm, yep, uh, is verse 22. So 1 Timothy 2.13. Okay. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Notice the word for there. He's making an argument, and he's going to say, Whatever I just said earlier, the reason I'm saying it is was Adam was made first, then Eve. Do you get a picture, even without knowing what he's arguing, how he arrives at his answer is, I just read the creation account, and I was looking at carefully which one was made first. So backing up a verse, he says, uh, two verses, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And we could go on from there, but this is the Genesis 2 part. He actually makes an argument from Genesis 3 then, which is this. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And somebody says, I don't want to preach that stuff. This is making me nervous. How did Paul get where he got? Is he, the word they use as misogynist, does he hate women? Is that the thought? Say, no, he doesn't hate women. That's a wrong starting spot. Um, say, what is Paul's starting spot then? His starting spot is Genesis chapter 2, right? Now, we can even arrive at different spots of, okay, what's the proper role of men and what does it look like to obey what Paul is talking about here, but seeing where's he building his understanding of what it looks like in the church. Where does it come from? It comes from the order of creation. Do you notice this? He's saying the order of creation matters. It's, it's a really significant thought. The fact that man was created first and woman was created to be his helper is not an insignificant thing that you can just brush aside and say, we're done with that. 
You can't say the fall created that, like sin created that. Men have always wanted to keep women down because of sin. Say, no, when did the order of creation happen? Before sin or after sin? Say, no, that happened before. So is this based on this particular, Paul's thinking, wow, this is because of sin, this is happening. You say, no, his first argument is not about her sin at all. The first argument is solely based on Adam was formed first. Therefore, he's the leader. And so, so what Paul is saying is, therefore, the church needs to reflect that. So what we have to do as people is say, well, how does it look like in our assembly? How can we in good conscience keep what God's word is saying? Um, but we do have to wrestle with what Paul wrote here. And that's where he's building his theology from. And you say, wow, that, even that little thought of the order of creation, Paul's thinking hard about it because that's what happened in Corinthians. That's what's happening here. It matters a lot to him. Little details like who came first? Who did God speak to first? That sort of thing. So now he's going to go back to 1 Corinthians 11.8. We're not going there because that was the same passage we read earlier about a, the woman came from man, that passage. And you say, okay, Paul, he keeps going back to Genesis chapter 2. That's where it's coming from. So again, if somebody would say, men are just coming up with random rules to keep women down, that would be a tragedy if that was true. And have people ever done that? And you'd say, sure. Is that what Paul is doing? Or can I track his argument out and say, Actually, no, I can go where Paul goes. I have to figure out, Paul, how did you get there and do what you did? Or is he misusing the word? Is that an option open to him? That's not an option open to him. Is it an option open to me? It's not supposed to be, but do I sometimes? And the answer is, sure. But the apostles, Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. Paul got it right. So what it's saying is, Paul is interpreting Genesis for us and saying, let me tell you, the order of creation is very significant and it needs to be seen and reflected in your church. Okay. So if someone would say, which is a current argument in different places, thoughts about women and their roles in church and keeping them in different spots is equated with, I think it will be equated someday with what happened in slavery. So people have made comments like that. I don't know if any of you have heard a comment like that, that we will be repenting someday for this. What I would answer to that is, you have to wrestle with Paul here about that. He's not viewing this like slavery. He's actually viewing it as this is God's intention to create in a certain way. How can this be reflected in a loving, kind way, though? So we're not going to talk about what it looks like in a church other than to say Paul is wrestling with the scripture and we have to wrestle with Paul. We have to. We don't have a choice. So moving for, further, then you see 24 and it, then it has in uh, italics Matthew 19.5, MC is Mark, Mark 10.7, 1K 6.16, E 5.31. So back in Genesis, looking at Verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 2, 
and verse 24, it reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay. Do you remember I, I mentioned something earlier today, and what I said was this is the first teaching instruction in the Bible. And why did we need a teaching instruction? I said we needed it because our thought would have been, yep, I know your original intention for marriage. However, Adam and Eve sinned. All that's blown apart. And so marriage today is different from marriage then. That's the thought. So this instruction says you can't rewrite the marriage rules. It's exactly the same. Isn't that what it's saying? So marriage now is the same as Adam and Eve's marriage. That's what he's saying. Therefore, everything that just applied applies right here. So then we had these quotes. Let's see what happens in the New Testament. So what's the first one we got here? Matthew 19, verse 5. Anybody guess? Without ending up there, what is this passage? Divorce. We'll start in Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is stunning. First of all, he attributes that teaching comment to somebody. Who's he attribute it to? The Creator. That's a stunning thought. Whose words are these right here? Jesus' words, right? The question is about divorce. Did Genesis 2 say anything about divorce? Say, no. What did it say? What did it teach? About union. What did it say about union? A man will be joined. Did it talk about people separating at all? The only separating was what separating? A man leaving his father and mother, and clinging to his wife, and the two becoming one flesh. And he's saying, haven't you read it? He, Jesus knows they have read it. He's saying, you've never read it in here. You don't know. So the amazing thing is, did Genesis 2 say anything about divorce? Was it a, in reality, was it speaking about divorce? And Jesus would say, absolutely. And what's the answer? He would say, you can't. That would be his simple answer. Now, obviously, in our churches, some of us here, you'd say, wait a minute, I've been divorced or whatever. But looking at Jesus' words here, though, if the thought is about marriage, can I just get rid of my wife for any reason? That was the first thing. The very simple answer is Jesus said is, I'm bringing you right back to Genesis 2. You can't. God brings them together. Don't let man separate this. You can't do it. 
They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give away, give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And he said, Moses did this because of your hardness of heart. So going to just make a further comment. It's not from Genesis right here. Moses gave this command because of your hardness of heart. Does it mean he said, ah, you're just going to do what you want? So because of your hardness of hearts, I'm giving you a command that lets you do what you want. Does that strike you as the way God's word works? So what's the hard heart thing? Why did the command come in? Brandon, what are you thinking? Stephen, just a merciful, built-in protection for the very women that were being mistreated to guard them. Did you guys catch that? The hardness of heart is the law came because you're a hard-hearted people and you will be abusing people. And the law is a protection. The law should not have been needed, though. But a hard-hearted people, an outside-the-garden people, they're needing this because they will be destroying lives. The amazing thing is, though, the Pharisees aren't seeing it as this law was given precisely because of people like you to protect and help the woman. They're seeing it as, did he say I get a get-out-of-jail-free card? That's the thought. So Jesus goes straight back to Genesis and he is able to teach on marriage. So the question is, should we be able to do the same? Can you use Genesis 2 to talk about marriage? And should it maybe even be our starting spot? If we're going to talk about marriage, start here. Why? Because this is the pre-fall version of marriage, not the hard-hearted version of marriage. It's the one he says, this is intention. She's a helper so you can fill the earth with God's glory. You need her and she's perfectly fit for you. And you say, not this one isn't perfectly fit because we're after the fall. And she's saying, and I don't want to obey him, submit to him because he's not perfect. When he's worth submitting to, then I'll start submitting. And Jesus would bring same thing right back to Genesis 2. So that's what's happening here. So I want to go to the second one, Mark 10, verse 7. So we're going to find the same passage quoted here. Worded a little different. Pharisees, verse 2, came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? Now think about this. What did Moses command? How does Jesus read the command? They're going to read it different than him. What's Jesus' thought about Moses' words? Brandon, what's Jesus' thought about Moses' words? Going back to what you just said. He goes, what did Moses command you? Their answer should have been something like this. Well, Moses knew we had hard hearts and we would want to abuse people and he put a law in place to protect innocent victims. Is that going to be the Pharisees' answer right here? They're going to be, no, I'm quoting the law and telling you how I can get out of something. So because they're going to do that, where will Jesus bring them? Because their thought is, we've got a free pass here. He's going to bring them back one step further and say, I'm ending this argument right here. That's the thought here. 
They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. By the way, where is that quoted from? Genesis chapter 1. Where can you preach marriage from? Genesis chapter 1. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I didn't, God didn't join us together. I did that. And I just picked poorly. What would Jesus say? No, God did this. I didn't ask for this. Say, no, this is what God did. You don't have a choice. And not saying at all. I just want to be very clear. Those of you guys who have had divorce, things like that, not saying the Scriptures doesn't have more to say about this and that God doesn't forgive. So this not just saying, how does Jesus, though, argue? How, do, how are the apostles going to argue and say they're going to go straight back to Genesis 2? And you say, well, I think they're misusing these texts. Big deal. Adam's made first Adam, Eve. Big deal. And, and they're going to say, it was a very big deal. And our lives and our churches should reflect that order. That's what it should look like. Third one, 1 Corinthians 6.16. See that 1K? 6.16. 1 Corinthians 6.16. What are you going to do with this, Paul? We have a church that's gone mad in Corinth. All thing, verse, starting in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. It's almost like he's got a quote from, it's like a teenager talking to a parent. All things are lawful for me, Dad. Not all things are helpful. You can imagine the Corinthians. Jesus died on the cross. I can do whatever I want. So, so you're getting a call and response sort of thing here. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Here's their quote. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Say, weird quote. It's not about food. The conversation you can find earlier is about sex. And the argument is this. God made me. He wired me a certain way. I have certain needs. What am I going to do? That's the thought. Food's made for the stomach. Stomach's made for food, I'm going to eat. You say, that's a very um, safe way of talking about, I am going to do what I want sexually because I'm free in Christ. That's the idea here. Say, oh wow, how is Paul going to deal with this? Where will he go in his arguing? He says, you need to know this, your food stomach argument, God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. See, it wasn't about food and stomachs. It's about sexual immorality. But for the Lord. The body is meant for the Lord. Going back, thinking about creation, why were you created? For the Lord. That's the purpose. Um, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. This is stunning. What's he talking about now? What has Paul just done? Think hard about this. What's he done? Is he talking about your marriage at this point? Is that what this text is about? It's talking about the relationship to God. He's above everything, everywhere. He being joined to him is everything. Everything else comes underneath that. Right. Right. And so this is about a joining, two being brought together. Who are the two being brought together here in Paul's quotation? Yeah. And you think, okay, so the Genesis 2 passage, remember I said poetry is housing a lot in there and it's messianic? Like you start going, I think this is going to be about more than it's just about. This is going to be about that situation but they're going to use this because it's going to be about a lot more than just that. What's he saying marriage is ultimately a picture of? What's he saying? Being joined to the Lord. I say, I'm going to do what I want. My body's made for whatever I want. I'm wired like this. I'm going to do this. He says, no, you can't do that. You must not do that. That's forbidden because you've been joined to the Lord. You say, Paul, you just got very creative with Genesis chapter 2. Did he do it right? Can he do this? He did do it. So our job as people who know and love the Lord is, Paul, how'd you get there? But this is a really big deal. Somebody go, um, some of us who are at the prison, and these guys are like, he, the Lord, certainly can't expect me to stay pure, blah, blah, blah. You've heard this before. It's not just there. You'll hear it all over the place. You might think it yourself. Get in a moment and say, surely the Lord doesn't think I won't take a second look here. He can't be that demanding on me. Well, just change the analogy a little bit and say, surely my wife wouldn't care if I take a second look here. She can't be that demanding on me. What's she going to say to you? She might not speak at that moment. She might say nothing to you at that moment. But do you see the picture here? Do you see what Paul is doing? He reads about the marriage of man and woman, and what's he hearing? The marriage of Christ and his bride, his people. And you go, yeah, that's the church generally. And say the church generally has what in it? individuals in it, correct? I can't just do whatever I want. So, we're going to move forward from here. See the E531? Who's E? What's E? Ephesians. You should know what passage we're getting to. He's giving, uh, some people would call these household rules. We're not going to start in verse 31. We're going to um, start in verse 22.
So Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I don't like that verse. I'm not going to preach that verse. It's going to make trouble. Is that really a healthy attitude for us to have? I'm going to avoid something God set in place because it will trouble people. Will it trouble them or will it help? Did Paul write things ago? I'm just trying to stir the pot here. Think, is that really what he was thinking? Or was he thinking, I will help you in your marriages here. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Because the husband's ahead of the wife. I don't like that. Say, can we read Genesis? And can I just tell you the story that's been told here? You're part of this grand story. You say, yeah, that was all before. You say, the apostles don't treat like that's passed away. There's a continuity. The story's being told. So, here, he says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What is he doing here? He can't help but talk about one and flip to the other. It's like in his DNA, I think of a marriage and I'm thinking about Christ in the church. I'm thinking about Christ in the church and I'm thinking about a marriage. And they're supposed to have a similar relationship. The church is not over Christ. A wife is not over her husband. The husband is supposed to love his wife just like Christ loves the church. The marriage being reflected in every marriage. That's the picture here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is an amazing passage because he's talking to husbands about how to love their wives. He cannot stop talking about Jesus, though. So it's like he just gets on a roll, even though he's taught the conversation is husbands. But the whole basis of the conversation is Christ and the church. Say, do you want to know how to be a good husband? Read this book with 47 principles of husbands and wives and blah, blah, blah. And Paul said, yep, that's fine. Read the book if you really want to, but just look at Jesus and think about the church. That's your model. Do that. That's what he's saying. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Why would I love my wife as my own body? Because the two are one. If I hate my wife, who do I hate? Myself. Am I helping myself? I, my wife is just, I am going to just really oppose her and think, wow, you're going to make life really bad for yourself. Your helper, you are destroying. And the problem is this, you have no, you have no help then. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh. That's not natural, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now notice his quote there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ 
and the church. That quote there, what did he just call it? This is profound. Say, profound means there's a lot packed in this thought right here. A man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and say, what does hold fast to mean? What are the sorts of things would it mean? If I changed the analogy, I said, you're a sailor of an old-fashioned ship in the seas, and you have to stay on deck, what does hold fast mean? Grab on something, don't let it go. Ride out the storm. And you are going to have to have a desperation to do this thing. You've got to make it. How do we treat it so often, though? When it's all smooth, I will hold fast to my wife. Isn't that the philosophy? And when she, when she can be calm waters like I deserve then I will love her like Christ loved the church. All of our testimonies with Christ would say, wow, we would all be destroyed if that was how he treated us. All of us. The mystery is profound. That whole word mystery is he's saying something connected to the kingdom of the God, the gospel is here. There was a lot wrapped up in this. So we're watching him use a section of scripture and say, you just did some things here. I think I'm supposed to learn how you did what you just did or at least use what you just did in my thinking. This story was about a lot more than I thought it was about. I thought it was just about Adam and one woman and they get kicked out of the garden. I realized we were actually reading the story of the church here. If, um, I think Jason said this about the Psalms a while back. It's almost like this, Genesis 1.0, Adam and Eve. What's Genesis 2.0? Christ in the church. Is that fair? You think the, do you think that's what we're hearing, a story, except in this story, Genesis chapter 3, because the serpent's been crushed, isn't happening that way. Instead, we're being clothed in righteousness, cherished. We're not being thrown under the bus like the woman you gave me, instead it's I will hold fast and I will fight for my bride. That's the picture here. Can't talk about one without talking about the other. He says, however, so now he's spilled back into Christ in the church. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now why, he didn't say it right there. Why does she have to respect her husband? What's in Paul's mind as he's saying these things? He's thinking of an Old Testament chunk. What chunk's he thinking of? Helpmate. And the order of creation. We already know he does that in another place, right? She, why she got to respect? Because she's his helper. She came out of him. That's the whole text he's thinking of. Is Paul's thinking, hey, and I want to keep women down? Say, no. Because ultimately, who is that demeaning? Think about it. Who is that demeaning, that sort of approach? It's demeaning God because God's the one who came up with this idea. God invented marriage. God invented the idea that Adam would be created first, then Eve. And his thought wasn't in creation, I am going to see how I can make one person miserable. So, are you tracking with how they're doing this? I love the fact that the apostles 
interact with these things because what it does, it provides a correction for me as I'm reading it and saying, hey, I think I mined everything that can be mined out of Genesis chapter 2 and then I encounter Paul and I think, oh, Paul, you're doing things I don't think I do. I want to know how you do this. Yeah, um, when I was a fresh doc, I was thinking about just kind of that, you know, the pushback you often hear against like complementarianism and, and just men's man leadership in the home. And just thinking about pushing how the arguments that push against that, it seems like what you're just describing, it would inherently insult Christ. Right. Because of the way he is leading the church. Right? Absolutely. And it's not just insulting Christ, it's insulting God the Father. So it's, these things aren't small. And if you say, well, I'm not going to preach it because it's going to make trouble, you say, no, you'll make trouble by not preaching it. And you don't have to apologize. You never apologize for a king. That's, that's wrong. I'm sorry the king said this, you've got to do it. I think it's stupid too. That's the implication, right? You don't apologize for the king. You can say this. I don't know why he said this, but I do know this. What he says is good. This is somehow good. I just don't, I don't get it, but we got to obey this. That is honoring the king and putting him in the right spot, even though I'd say I still don't get it, but it's right. I know that. I'm just not at the spot where I can explain it. The opposite is this. I'm not teaching it because I think ultimately, um, I think Tim Keller is the one who said it. He said people won't teach on hell because they think it's merciful not to. And he said, you need to know this. What you're saying in that is this. I am more merciful than God. It's a stunning thought, isn't it? I am kinder than the one who created all things and permits me to have a single breath. I understand kindness better than he does. I understand justice better than he does. And you say, wow. So, this is what they're doing with that little chunk. We're not going to stay there. Um, I want to, in our remaining minutes, talk about uh, what we see at the end of Revelation and then go to, we're going to backtrack here, but I want to start in Peter. So in Peter, 1 Peter 1, I mentioned this yesterday. Peter is talking about the gospel and he's talking about... Um, Jesus and what he did and our faith in that we'll suffer. And so he's saying, this, I'm writing about salvation. So he's writing about the salvation we experience as believers in the new covenant time period. So this is what he says, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Okay. So the prophets are Old Testament guys. That's what he's writing about. Not traveling prophets or anything in the New Testament. He's writing about Old Testament guys who wrote the scriptures. The prophets were writing, notice the first three words of 10, concerning this salvation. So that means if you're an Old Testament prophet, you were writing about new covenant salvation. That was your subject. So that means Malachi, if you said, hey, Malachi, someday there's going to be a new covenant, he'd say, I know, I wrote all about it. Did you ever read my book? Jason's been working for a very long time on Zephaniah. It is a new covenant book written in an old covenant age. Did Zephaniah know what he was writing about? 
Jason, did Zeph and I know what he's writing about? A lot of it, for sure. A lot of it, for sure. <laughs> so if we would come to him and say, hey, Zeph and I, I want to tell you a story, Zeph and I say, yeah, I knew that story. I just didn't know his name. Thank you for telling me. And I didn't know what time he would come. So the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, what's the prophets write about? Grace. I thought they wrote law. No, they wrote about grace. So you think about Moses. He's like, no, he wrote a bunch of laws and say, no, Moses would explain his writings as, no, I was writing about grace. Did you read it as law? I think you got it wrong. He said, no, Moses, I think you're wrong. And Jesus, say, Jesus would say, no, Moses wrote about me. What Moses were you reading? So all the prophets, they wrote about grace. It says, they searched and inquired carefully. So the prophets are looking somewhere. What are they looking for? Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. Holy Spirit didn't come tell the new covenant. Say, well, it says here the Spirit of Christ was in them, helping them write about grace to us when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets are searching. They can't search the New Testament. What are they searching? The Old Testament. So this means, for instance, if you want to say David in the Psalms, he is searching earlier writings to find out more. About what subject? Random Israel history? Is that what he's writing? Poetry techniques? No. What's the subject he's writing about? Grace, salvation, the suffering and deliverance of the Messiah. And David, you can just imagine him getting the books of Moses and pouring through them saying, I've got to find out more about this. How does, so here's the question. Peter's argument is the prophets looked at other books. You say, Peter, prove it. How do you know that? The reason you know it is because they quote them. So not only do we have New Testament guys quoting the Old Testament, we have Old Testament guys doing the exact same thing. So we have, for instance, Old Testament guys quoting these chapters of Genesis and using them in their writings. But the way they use them is not just like a ball that's just sitting there. It's a ball that's moved. It's moved from the five-yard line to the 50-yard line by these guys. And they're looking for more. They're diving. They're digging. The thing has been moved. The story hasn't been changed. It's just getting clearer and clearer in people's mind. So I want to start in Revelation chapter 22. Um, in Revelation chapter 21, it begins this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. Right away you'd say, where did I get that title, new heaven, new earth? Where does that come from? It comes from Isaiah. Where did Isaiah get it from? Heaven and earth. That pairing. Genesis. Which part of Genesis? One and two, right? Then I saw a new one. Oh, wonder what the new one's like. Say, ah, it's probably like the old one, just bigger. Because what was the mandate for man? You go fill the earth, be fruitful, work the ground, keep it, 
and the garden is going to go with you. So what I'm going to see in Genesis 21 and 22 is, let's take a look at this massive garden that's happened. So he's going to actually measure it. And scholars have pointed this out. He measures it, and he measures how wide it is. He measures how long it is. So you say, hey, tell me about your house. How big's your house? And I say, it's 30 by 30. Let's say something like that. Wouldn't it be weird if I told you it's 30 by 30 by 90? You'd go, why did you just tell me how tall it is? That's weird. Nobody does that. You might say it's a three-story house or something. Talking about land, how much land do you have? We have three acres. Is it three acres tall? You go, no, nobody thinks like that. The description of the New Jerusalem, though, is this long by this wide by this tall, and they all match perfectly, they're a cube. There's only one other cube in the Bible that's described. It's the Holy of Holies. What's the picture being told here? Everything is now the Holy of Holies. That's the picture. Everything, the garden, has spread out everywhere. So remember we were talking about weird stones and things like that? We're going to see them here except way more blown up. You're going to see there's tons of stones all over the place. The garden has filled everything. If there's a big garden, what does it tell you? Think back. What's connected to the garden? How does the garden get big? Water. Beyond that, what makes the garden big? People. People filling the earth. It means there must have been an Adam who did his job. And if there's a garden and they're back in the garden, it must mean something's not in the garden anymore. It's outside. Satan's been dealt with. The serpent's been dealt with. In Revelation, he's no longer a serpent, though. He's grown into a dragon, which is what he always was. He appeared small in Genesis. You get the huge, monstrous, real-life version in Revelation. The glory of dealing with the dragon belongs to Christ. So, we get to this description of it, and it says in verse 22 of 1, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Do you see any reflections of creation? The first creation needed sun or moon. This one doesn't need that. Why? Because God's glory has filled everything. It doesn't mean, this is poetry, it doesn't mean you'll never be able to look at a full moon again. That's not the story. It's, can you imagine glory so great that you'd go, somebody go, ah, it's a cloudy day, and say, in this place, there are no cloudy days. Why? Because God's glory fills everything. It's, it's poetry maxed out to its maximum level here. And its gates will never be shut by day. Why do we shut gates? Security. Keep stuff out. People who live here, typically, lots of people keep their keys in the car. For you guys who live in the city, how many of you do that? Why don't you keep your keys in your car? Because you will have no car anymore. (laughs) Here, every car is left running. That's the picture. The gates are wide open. Some people have said it's very bad theology. The gates are open because everybody can be there. And so, no, uh, a bunch of people have already been cast into hell. Mm -hmm. The gates are open because there's no danger anymore. 
Somebody says, hey, lock the doors, and, and you go, why? Why would we do that? I can't even imagine locking the doors. What's the, we don't even have locks. We keep the gates open. They've rusted open. They've been open so long. That's the picture. It says, uh, then it says, its gates will never be shut. There will be no night there. Ah, oh, shoot, I love a starry night. This is sweet. I like this. What happens at the night? Crime happens at night. Sin happens at night. What's the picture here? That's done away with. It doesn't mean, hey, the thing you loved, a nice night, you'll never see one of those again. Get, soak it in now because you'll never get one again. <laughs> it's saying crime will never happen again. Things that, like animals, wild animals, that watch out for scorpions, your wilderness people, you'll never have that again. Um, so, but uh, nothing unclean will ever in, into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who's in it? The people written in the book, the phone book of heaven. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Do you see what he just did? Where did he just take us? Right back to Genesis chapter 2, didn't he? What was a big focus? I said there were five verses on it. The river, right? And he said, Then he brought me to a river of life, bright as crystal. It's flowing from the throne of God through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life. This is bothersome for as the way we think of trees because you'd say on either side were trees. That's what you're meaning, right? Say, no, the tree of life, where is it? Both sides of the river. Say, John, you're using bad grammar here. One tree can't be in both places. I just suggest that thought of Christ and a people being in him and what's being reflected here is fruitful people. It's a picture of fruitful people. How fruitful they become, it's everywhere. Fruitfulness is everywhere. The tree has just become people and I'm going to help you see what he's doing here because he's quoting, even though you think, well, he's quoting Genesis 2, he's actually quoting Ezekiel here. That's what he's thinking of. Ezekiel is thinking of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is thinking of Genesis. And Revelation loops back. They're all thinking of the same stories. So you got the picture though? There's a city. How big is the city? It's immense. It's tall. It's as tall as it's wide. Why? Because it's the Holy of Holies. Everything's holy in it. It's a reflection of the garden has gotten massive the fact that the garden's massive is evidence of the fact that somebody did his job. There must be an Adam who did the job. And it's done. The city's finished. There's not a command now, go finish it, because it's finished. The command almost is, gates are open and enjoy it. Enjoy this. So, do you got the picture? 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. See that quote there? The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I want to go back to Ezekiel 47. So what did Peter say about the prophets? What did the prophets do? Could, okay, so if I'm a prophet, can I search Paul's letters? How come? They're not written yet. What can I search? Anything written before I came around that I have access to and I know about, right? So Ezekiel is writing about a river and a tree. What does Ezekiel have open to him? What books were written before this? What options does he have? Does he have Psalms? I think we'll find out because he happens to quote one. Does he have the book of Genesis? Do you think Ezekiel is reading them? And what way is he reading them? How is he reading them? So I'm going to start. Ezekiel 40 to 48, Ezekiel's having a vision, his vision of a, of a monstrous temple, and he measures it, or it is measured. It's huge. There's never been a physical building built like it. Some people will say, well, it's just evidence one will be built like it. I would say, based on his quotes here, it's just a picture of Christ in the church. That's what Ezekiel's thinking of because Jesus is going to quote it. His quote is this, everyone who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, somebody finish it, from his belly will flow rivers of living water. And you go, the rivers of living water, where are they? They're in the garden at the beginning. Where else are they? They're at the end. What was the purpose of the river? Remember what we said? The river flows out of Eden. Where does it go? It goes to the ends of the earth. Where you go, there's life so that the garden can go there too. That's picture. So Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. Behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. Weird. Eden was there. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, led me around on outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Water's trickling out of this temple. Okay? Just a little bit. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. Again he measured a thousand, led me through the water, and it was waist-deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? It's almost like Jesus saying, He who has ears, let him hear. The river has gotten massive. Say, well, what is it? What are you thinking of, Ezekiel? Then he led me to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. Where else did we see a river with trees on one side and the other? Who's thinking of that? John is. John didn't describe it as trees, though. He said it was the tree of life. But he's thinking of this. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, region goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. 
Okay. Fresh water encountering salt water, who wins in our age in this world? Salt water. How many times? Every time. What's the story being told here? Salt water, or fresh water enters salt water. What happens? Everything becomes fresh. Something is happening here. It says, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. And you should start thinking of, huh, somebody should catch those fish. Verse 10, and you think of things that Jesus said to a certain group of people he got on purpose that they're fishermen. A picture of, there's a story being told here because there's a river and there's going to be some fish to be caught. For this water goes uh, there and that the waters of the sea may become fresh so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Engleum, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. It fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. People are just going to be hauling in fish from this thing. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. You go, wow, there's a part that it would not be impacted by the water. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food, their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, their leaves for healing. What did John say? The leaves are for the healing of the nations. <coughs> Trees bearing fruit every month. John is clearly thinking of this passage. However, Ezekiel didn't call the tree the tree of life. Did you notice that? John did. So, putting the two together, what is Ezekiel describing? Are they describing the exact same thing? Are they thinking of the same thing? Has just John just said, I'm going to finish up a few details you didn't quite know, and I'm going to make them even clearer based on stuff from the New Testament. Same story. Is that, isn't that what's happening here? Can you see what John is quoting? So notice, though, verse 12. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. That's a quote. Where is it a quote from? Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Okay. What is Ezekiel thinking of? What's he doing? He's searching and inquiring. Why? What's his favorite subject? Peter told us his favorite subject. What's his subject? Salvation. Grace. The Messiah. I want to know about the Messiah. I'm searching other places. One of the places we know he's searching is Psalm 1. So we go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 um, says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight. His delight. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. And it was delightful for making one wise. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. What did Ezekiel say? 
What was this quote? Its leaf will not wither. Okay, here's the strange thing. Ezekiel's writing about a river, right? Revelation is writing about a river, right? Do they know Psalm 1? Ezekiel quotes it. Do they know the subject of Psalm 1? You think? They know the subject. Do they know the subject of Psalm 1 isn't a river and isn't a tree? Do they know that? Read it. What's the subject of Psalm 1? It's a man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in the season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. I just want to, thinking here, Revelation clearly was Genesis language blown up to the maximum proportion, correct? He's quoting Ezekiel, which is blown up to a proportion that say, Ezekiel would say, I don't have finishing touches to put on this, but it's this story. I'm thinking of a river, I'm thinking of a tree, but I'm quoting Psalm 1. And you have to say, okay, how well does Ezekiel know Psalm 1? Can he read it as well as I can? You say, I think he can read it better than me. Have to say that. He's meditating on it. What's the subject of Psalm 1? Think, think hard right now. What's the subject of Psalm 1? The blessed man. Keep, you got to say it louder, Matt. Oh, the seed of the woman that they're looking for in 3.15. Okay. Did you hear what he just said? You need to say this louder. This is a, this is a very big thing. Okay, say it not as a question. What is the psalmist writing about? The blessed man and the sea of the woman. From Genesis 3.15. Who is the blessed man? What's the subject of the psalmist? Based on Ezekiel, based on Revelation. What's the story being told in this psalm? It's the gospel story, right? So ultimately, first reading of it, when Ezekiel reads it, who is the blessed man for him? What Matt said is, it's the guy who meditates on law. He's not Adam and Eve, who are delighting in forbidden fruit. He been tested, so it's not like he's in the garden, never been tested. He's been, there's wild people all over. He's been tested. He hasn't done it. He's like a tree. He isn't a tree. He's like one. He's super fruitful. What is the psalmist thinking of? What story is he thinking of? Is it fair to say he's thinking of this story? Do you think John would say that? The Apostle John would have any problem saying, because I'd say absolutely not John would have no problem. Why? Because John calls the tree in Revelation the tree of life. Doesn't he? So John ties his thing right back to the beginning story. You'd say, okay, ultimately then, the psalm, this psalm, what's the story being told? The story being told is of the blessed man who became the fruitful tree. But there, in Revelation, there isn't just one tree, is there? 
How many trees were there in Revelation? Both sides. Described singularly, though. Weird. Because we're in Christ, I would suggest, so that his life has spilled over into his people who are his body. Fruit is being born everywhere, and the river being a picture of the Holy Spirit, because what Jesus said is, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within his belly. And Jesus said to the woman, do you remember John 4? What was his words to the woman? If you're thirsty, you would have asked me, and I would give you a drink of living water, and you'd never be thirsty again. The story being told here in Genesis if you go, what the psalmist just did is, I'm writing the same story, but I'm writing it not about the first one. I'm writing about the conquering guy. You say, well, can I call myself the blessed man? What's the answer? In him? Yes, I can. But I'm part of a story. I'm not a random, disconnected thing. I'm part of a story that started in Genesis, being wrapped up, in Revelation, I'm not a disconnected free agent telling my own blessed man story. There is no free agent blessed man story. There's the story of the marriage, the two becoming one flesh. So, seeing what they're doing, tracking out these guys, you'd say, wow. What did the Old Testament guys do with Genesis? I'd say this, they thought super hard about it. Deeply, longly, they chewed on it. I can imagine having conversations that went till 3.30 in the morning saying, do you think the tree is actually a man? Ezekiel talking to somebody, those sorts of things. When, who's coming? Well, he's going to have to be somebody who meditates on God's word day and night because the serpent's out there and he's terrible. That's the picture being painted. So I'd like to just... Talked about a lot about this, but I'd just like to get some reflections. What the Lord is stirring in your heart before we close here. So, what you're thinking, what you're being stirred on. Great to have you illustrate the connectedness to the Old New Testament and the prophets and We have been given a gift to have a complete scripture, haven't we? It's, ama it's amazing that we have this gift. I think if I told the prophet, if you met a prophet and you told him, hey, by the way, there's whole chunks of books I don't like, they're boring, they're hard to read, prophets would be so angry with us. <laughs> They'd be like, do you know how hard I worked with the four that I had or the, you know, that thought. Anybody else? How, how much richer and deeper can we preach when we see that, that line? Hmm. You know, how, how someone pulls from Genesis and, and the argument, you know, like you said about, well, people can have their thoughts on women being elders when preaching, but when you go carefully through that, you say, gosh, he pulled it out before this, the fall. So we can't say the, the, the gospel redeemed that, like it was lost. Right. No, that's the way it always was. Right. It's pretty hard to... And Jesus, even, even that teaching moment was continuity from that. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
Greg. It seems to me that if, if, if prophets, if, you know, if, if it was, they were speaking of the salvation that was to be revealed and has been revealed to us, how much more so in our preaching of the world of the word should salvation through Christ be a part of every mm. that's really That's really good. If that's their driving thing and they have whole details they don't know yet, they would be stunned, I think, sometimes at things I've been fascinated with. They'd say, how could you be fascinated with that when you had this story and you wanted to be camping over here? Yeah, Brandon, you were thinking something. <clears throat> just talk, talk a little bit louder for the guys yeah, over here. So, uh, thinking a couple things, but one, just building on your explaining, just thinking how I've been thinking a lot about just preaching the gospel. Um, you know, every Sunday and thinking about how... Um, God would have us preach the gospel naturally from every text. And this type of meditation, I think, is a big part of that answer of how to preach it naturally. So mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like that canned gospel presentation in every sermon. So I just love that. Mm -hmm. It's just it's so fresh and beautiful, and it just strikes me as the way it's meant to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing is just, on a practical note, just remodeling, just, just seeing how the, we should anticipate that these pictures we see in Genesis one to three are going to get blown up. We expect it to be completely blown up in Revelation, but also, like, in those intermediate steps to see it just getting bigger and bigger. So, like, that example you use, like, the ball on the yard line, I'm picturing, like, a, a snowball that you push mm. 30 yards, you know. That's a better... And it just gets bigger. Yep, like that. that's it's, good. No, but it just helps me to say, I should expect that. So when I'm looking for pictures to see what Ezekiel is meditating, I'm like, whatever it is, it's going to be smaller. Is going back, right? Yep. And then, and then vice versa. Like I'm in Revelation, I'm thinking, okay, this is bigger. Like this is a bigger picture of something. Right. So just, just help me. So that's good. Yeah, Mills. Well, I just think it's very important that these, all of this stuff that we're hearing, helps the pastor to know that they have to pre preach the truth. Mm -hmm. It really has to be brought. And, and you can't shirk comment. You can't. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Rod. The, uh, the concept of pro uh, progressive progression from the beginning to the end and the end going back to confirm what's complete from the beginning to the end in the concept of here a little there a little. Hmm. Line upon line, precept upon precept. That's what I come away from. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I say one thing? Yeah, you can say whatever you want. I just want to affirm you, brother. I just, one, one thing I'm just really learning a lot just, just sitting under the teaching is how helpful it is to, to be patiently walked through text and um, just thinking about it, I mean, even a lot of us church, as church leaders, like we need to have someone patiently walk us through so that we can see it and make the connections and just just a good model for how we need to patiently walk our people through to help them see it, even if it means really slowing down because that's, you know, if we need, some, if we need someone to slow down to help us, <laughs> uh, how much more our people will need us to slow down. Hmm. So, thanks for modeling that, Rod. I'm just really blessed. Mm -hmm. Amen. Uh, 
It's a joy. It's a joy, isn't it, for us to together be in. I love what Jesus said. He said, anybody who's ever been, in, been instructed in God's word is like a man who's got new treasure in his belly to bring out and old, you know, like, so it's not one person. This is what the prophets were saying. Hey, I was writing about that stuff. So anybody else? Jason, what are you thinking right now? What's stirring around in your craw? I'm thinking that if you brothers stand up and say, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22, and simply say, see this tree here? This tree is Jesus. And this tree is everyone in Jesus, bearing great fruit. And most of your people are going to say, that's ridiculous. <laughs> They're going to say, you're not being faithful with the text. You're not reading the Bible literally. How... Have you, yes, right? Mm -hmm. and, and yet, in less than 30 minutes, Pastor Tom said, now I want you to see, he's using an Old Testament text here. Now let's go back and walk through that text. Now this text, see this line right here? That means that he had, Ezekiel 47 had Psalm 1 in mind. Can you see that? Now what's Psalm 1 talking about? All he did was patiently walk through, and all of a sudden, this isn't crazy Tom. This is, I am just awed and need to surrender to the book, and I just learned how to read Old, read old and New Testament prophecy as it's intended to be read, rather than, and, and that's the literal meaning of the text. That's the literal meaning, mm -hmm. that it's intended to be, see the symbol and, and say, this is Jesus, this is the people in Jesus, and yet... Um, many people are uncomfortable with that because they've never been shown. And what, what we're doing here in, the, in this second set of stuff, the second set of passages, is simply, um, I mean, my session was a little different than this one uh, in that we did an exercise, but um, reflecting like Tom has been able to do it here, camping a little longer on certain texts and saying, why did he do it this way? What exactly is he getting at here? Um, all of a sudden, you're going to be seeing things you've never seen before, raising questions that you've never asked, that you didn't even know you should be asking, and you're going to be letting your own heart and then your people's heart be celebrating over how the whole Bible hangs together and God is intently working to magnify his son. Second thing I, I was thinking as we were working through these texts was that, especially in Paul's letters, in the first half of this session, um, Paul's using scripture must, much less like we preach our sermons and much more like we should be using scripture in our counseling sessions. What I mean is, we're not seeing him in 1 Timothy 2, unpack line by line Genesis chapter 2 like we would often be doing in many of our sermons because he didn't write this as a sermon he wrote it as a letter to a friend and he's infusing his counsel given by God with scripture it's just saturated in his book and, and so I, I just want to encourage you brothers to be thinking 
I want not just my preaching, but all of my ministry to be mm. filled with the word so that I can just be bringing it. It's just coming out of me. I'm able to, to be living in it. Um, like we're seeing exemplified in these sinful men called apostles that God set apart to use mm. as instruments of his grace. good. I thought the, so that, that track that we were ending up in, the Psalm 1 track, just want if that's Psalm 1, and you say, hmm, I think it's the blessed man is the new Adam. I think that's what it's about. And I think Revelation would say that. What that should do is make me think, I wonder if this is the songbook about the new Adam. Because the first one's like that. I wonder if that's what he's doing. Because all of a sudden, I'm not the primary subject of the Psalms. And the suffering isn't primarily about me. Not saying it all doesn't speak to me, and I can't be the blessed man. Because he'd say, yep, I can, but I can't be by myself if I'm not in him. Just like I can't be a fruit tree next to the river. Like, and on the river, there was one fruit tree, and then there was this one lonely other fruit tree. There were a bunch of them. There's only one fruit tree, it's Christ. I can't be my bonus version. So I'm a subject in the Psalms as I'm in the blessed one. That idea. Well, brothers, this has been sweet. Um, Some of you are leaving tonight. Who's leaving tonight? And not coming back tomorrow. Thank you for being here. Um, It's been really good. We will put these up um, up front. Bob Usher, would you come and close us tonight in prayer? I'm really glad you came. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and thank you that um, we have your word. It's awesome and new and fresh. And just continue to give us fire for it, Lord. And uh, thank you for these teachers. Thank you that uh, we have this facility, and, mm-hmm. and uh, thank you for each brother here and all those who were here, and maybe some have left already, but we just uh, want to exalt your name and lift you high, and we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.